Good morning. Um, so, for those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, Jason Martin. I'm a member at the Vine here, and uh, I've had the privilege to speak in front of this uh, congregation probably five or six times uh, in the six and a half years that I've been attending here. Uh, and each time before today, it was because the, um, the regular preacher, the regular minister was traveling or was out of town or otherwise couldn't be here. This is the first time that I'm doing so with, with our minister in the building. So um, I, didn't, I didn't really think that through when I agreed to, to do it. So uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping this goes well. Um, just a, a couple of quick announcements. I, I probably am stealing somebody's thunder, and I apologize for that, but I, I, there are a couple of things I want to make sure that get mentioned. If it gets mentioned again, uh, again later on, that's great, but um, a couple of things. I, I'm really excited about a lot of the things going on here at this church. Um, I think this, this year is going to bring a lot of renewal. It's going to bring a lot of initiative, um, and it's going to bring a lot of opportunities for you all to be involved in God's ministry in, uh, in new and unique ways. Uh, I think most of you probably know about uh, the preschool that is moving here, and uh, I think there are going to be a lot more people around this week. I think they actually start classes next week, um, and that's, I think, a really exciting thing to have. Uh, Warren, correct me if I'm wrong, but there, is, is there going to be a meeting of teachers today? Is that still on? Yes. I'd heard a rumor about Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the the anyone who teaches Sunday school who wants information about how that's going to change, it you know, which I don't think there's a lot, but some changes as well as um, just new ways that we're going to benefit from that. Um, we're going to have a short meeting for that, and then uh, next week is going to be you know a fuller meeting where the leaders of the church are going to talk about their vision for the church, and then in two weeks. Um, during class, we're going to have a meeting for people interested in the youth ministry that we have here. So um, before, Katie, before Katie Ann came to our church, um, I kind of led the youth ministry here. And um, that was a, a, a very wonderful and, and challenging and grow, uh, growth-oriented experience for me personally um, and with Katie Ann stepping out of that position, we, we are going to bring someone else in that position, not immediately, but eventually, and, in, and to kind of fill the gap, uh, we are all going to kind of chip in. And so I would encourage you, if you are in any way interested in working with the youth of our congregation, um, and potentially youth of other uh, groups and other organizations, we're hoping to, to kind of grow that a little bit, to feel free to attend that meeting. You don't have to have a kid you know, who is middle school, high school age in order to do it. Anybody can, uh, can participate in that and help out with that. And so I hope that anybody who has a, uh, an interest in getting involved in youth ministry and think that, uh, or anyone who has an interest in just helping out doing whatever, doesn't mean you have to be, you know, teaching a class. It doesn't mean that you have to be, uh, you know, hosting an event. There are lots of different things that people can do. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, so... Today is uh, January 5th. It is the first Sunday of a new year, first Sunday of a new decade. Um, and I, I want us to, I'd like for us to get this, this time off uh, before I say anything else with a, a word of prayer. 
God, I um, come before you now um, in awe of the work that you do minute by minute and day by day. Uh, you have blessed my life and you have blessed the lives of, of everyone in this room in countless ways. Um, we know that despite our troubles, despite the, the stressors, the, the hardships that we may encounter, that you're always with us. Lord, I ask that as we enter into this new year, that you can renew with us, renew within us a spirit of your will, that, we, that you renew in us a spirit of um, reflection, a spirit of love, and a spirit of inclusion. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, um, so this is January 5th. It's pretty soon when people often do New Year's resolutions. Um, I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions myself. Um, I've tried them in the past, and occasionally I still do them. It's not that I don't do them at all. But um, I, I think New, New Year's resolutions, as I tend to think of it, um, are often a little lacking in my mind. Um, because a lot of times it comes down to being, okay, it's January 30th, or I mean, December 30th, December 31st, January 1st, January 2nd, somewhere around there. And we think, okay, what is screwed up in my life that I need to make right? You know, okay, I'm too fat. I need to lose some weight. Or I'm not, I'm not active enough. I need to exercise more. Or I'm not in my Bible enough. I need to read my Bible more. And all those are fine. There's nothing wrong with with resolving to do that more. Um, but in, in my time of wrestling with the question of New Year's resolutions, the thing I always come down to is, okay, how's that actually going to work in practice? Because you know, if you just say, okay, I'm going to do more of this, and most of the time, uh, New Year's resolutions is about doing more of something or making some kind of big change in our regular habits. And if we're going to do more of this, we have to do less of something else, right? Because just because I create a New Year's resolution, it doesn't mean that my resolution can involve more hours in the day or more days in the week. Um, and probably the habits that I've developed that I'm wanting to break were developed for a reason. Um, it, I, th I think it's important to, for us to be realistic about the fact that any habit that we've created was created to fill a need in our life. Even if it's an unhealthy habit, that habit was created to fill a need. Um, and if we decide to just simply change that habit because something is wrong with it or it's outlived its usefulness or it isn't as healthy as we'd like for it to be, we have to be considerate of what that need is that that habit was serving in the first place. Because if we don't and we just change the habit wholesale without addressing the need that that original habit was serving then we're going to be left with a void. And any void in our life is usually going to be filled with things that we know, things we're comfortable with. And so, uh, for instance, if I want to eat healthier, okay, I'm going to eat healthier. I'm not going to eat, you know, the chips. I'm not going to eat the cookies. I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm going to go off, you know, my wife's been wanting me to go off of lactose. She thinks I'm lactose intolerant. So, okay, I'm going to go off the milk. Okay, what am I going to put in my cereal instead? <laughs> Um, what, what am I going to have with the Oreos late at night? Well, I probably shouldn't be having the Oreos in the first place. But those moments will inevitably come when 
that whatever it was that compelled me to do those things in the first place, those moments will return. What am I going to do instead? How am I going to counteract that? Um, if I'm going to exercise more, okay, I'm going to get up every morning uh, an hour earlier than normal and go work out. I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do something. And all it takes is me getting up uh, an hour earlier than normal. I don't know about you, but that is borderline impossible for me, okay? I'm lucky enough to get out of bed in time to get where I need to go in the first place. If there is an optional place for me to go to that I don't actually have to go to, uh, there's, you know, slim to none chance that I'm going to actually go to that more than once or twice. And even that's a little questionable. And so we have to think realistically about that. And so... um, Instead of resolutions, and like I said, I occasionally will have a New Year's resolution, but what I try to do more regularly, what I try to do around this time of year, instead of setting New Year's resolutions, is I prefer to use the new year as a time to kind of take a look at what I'm already doing and just kind of ask myself, is this serving the purpose that it should in my life? Am I getting out of this and am I giving into it um, what what I really should be getting and giving into that thing, whatever it is, and that may uh, that may have to do with you know things at work, um, so projects I'm involved in. Um, one of the things that I I, uh, um, I actually do this twice a year. I do this right now, and I also try to do it around August because my my schedule kind of revolves around the school year. I teach it at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor, and so my, my um, schedule kind of revolves around the school year schedule. So August is a good time for that. January is a good time for that. And so I usually do this around twice a year. And back last August, I decided I needed to, um, I needed to be more, uh, I, I needed to be more mindful of completing projects. So I had a number of different things that I had my hand in, uh, some in partnership with other people, some things I was just doing on my own. I was like, I got to finish some things. And so this is a time I can look back and say, okay, we're about five months removed from that period of time. How successful have I been? And, you know, I, I, to be perfectly honest with, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of completing projects and finishing things, um, I've done okay not perfect. I think there are still some ways in which I've, I've, uh, you know, kind of dragged my feet a little bit. Um, I actually have taken on um, at least one additional project that probably I shouldn't have, but I did anyway. But the good news is that one is actually uh, closer to completion, so it's not. It's kind of a mixed bag there. Um, and so, when I think about like what what am I doing? How am I pursuing things in my life? I think about like what how I'm actually spending my time. But I also think about what's my attitude. I, I'm a believer that attitude is everything. If I go into a situation expecting it to be bad or just kind of like, ugh, I don't want to do this, and just dragging my feet, I know I'm going to be miserable. You know, um, m- many of you have probably heard me talk about my um, disdain for the beach, particularly the sand at the beach. I don't like sand. I don't like it at all. And the, the, but the, the challenge here is I'm married to a woman who loves the beach, who wants to go to the beach probably as often as is reasonable. I, I suspect we would probably be at the beach, 
you know, uh, more than a few times a year if we lived a little bit closer to the beach. Um, but she loves going, and I want to support her in that. And, and, you know, she does things with me that she doesn't really want to do, and I want to do things with her that, that she wants to do, even if it's not my favorite thing. And so when we go to the beach, um, I will go. And for many years, I went, and I felt like that was my gift to her, my presence at the beach. <laughs> but then one day, we went, and I was complaining about the sand, and I was just like, this is terrible. Oh, I hate the sand. It gets in the car. I can't get it out. It's in everything, and uh, I can't get comfortable. It doesn't feel good to me. I don't like sand. I've been on good beaches, you know. Texas beaches sometimes is a mixed bag, uh, depending on where you go. Uh, but I've been to good beaches. You know, I've, I've been to beaches in Mexico and in the Caribbean and, and in Italy. And, uh, you know, there are good beaches out there. I don't like any of them. None of them are where I want to be. Um, and so I would go to the beach begrudgingly, and I would be like, okay, look at me being a good husband, going to a beach that I hate because I love my wife. And one day she said to me, you know what? <laughs> I wish you wouldn't even come because you complain the whole time. <laughs> and she was right. I complained the whole time, and I realized that I wasn't really doing her any favors. I wasn't actually making that a good experience for her. I wasn't really loving her very well. And so, that, I mean, that's just a small example, but that's one example of how your attitude makes a huge difference. And I'm still working on that. Um, and so, what is, what is my attitude? What is my perspective? What, what is the lens through which I choose to look at my life? And I do think it's a choice. You know, we can choose to look at our life through a lens of hope and love and optimism and joy. And we will see a lot of that in the world. We can also choose to look at our life through the lens of despair and, um, and disgust and disagreement. I mean, you don't have to look very far to find people that you disagree with. And if that's important to you to find those people, you will find them and you will be disagreeable with them and you will be disgusted with them. And I don't know about you, but for me, if I do that, that just brings down my entire mood. And how am I going to show the love of God? How am I going to... Um, be the salt and the light if I'm just so negative all the time. And so that's an, that, that is another thing that I've, tried, I've been reflecting on lately uh, this week is what, how do, what is my attitude? Um, and when it comes to my faith life, uh, when, I, when I want to kind of refocus myself, when it comes to my faith life, I always, want, I always turn to the Gospels. Um, you know, the Gospels are four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, um, it, it, you know, percentage-wise, it's a very small percentage of the Bible as a whole. It's a very small percentage of, uh, it's a relatively small percentage of even just the New Testament. Um, but for me, no, there's no better place to look for uh, an example of, of how our attitude should be, how our posture, our, our spiritual posture should be, than looking at the example of Jesus. Um, I mean, we, there are other places that we could look to get some of that, you know, some of the writings of Paul, some of the stories in the Old Testament, uh, the Psalms, all of those things have uh, 
have components that we could learn from to give us sort of an attitude adjustment and help us fo- help focus our spiritual life in the right direction. But for me, I love going to the Gospels. I want to see, you know, how does Jesus approach these topics? And more specifically, I often turn to the Gospel of John. Um, John, John is definitely my favorite of the four Gospels. Maybe I don't know if that's a good thing to say or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's my favorite of the four Gospels. Um, And the reason it's my favorite of the four Gospels is because it is the only Gospel that was written years, and it was the last Gospel written, basically. It was written so, and and even non-Christian scholars, even scholars who study the Bible, not for a religious or spiritual reasons, but for historical or literature reasons, they also agree, yeah, it was the last of the Gospels written. Um, uh, in fact, it, the, the book of Revelation is generally considered to be the last book of the Bible ever written. Um, it just so happens it comes at the end of the Bible. That's not always the case. Uh, but the Gospel of John was written not too far, uh, not too long before uh, the, Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. Um, and the reason I like to do that is uh, to look at John because it is uh, one of the the newer, so to speak, it was written later, is because that, you know, as I'm looking back and reflecting on my life over the last few months, over the last few years, John, throughout the gospel, is looking back and reflecting on the ministry of Jesus. He has a much more of a perspective to understand why things were happening. Um, And so as I've studied John, I've found that there are three themes that stand out to me. And those are the three themes that we're going to, to, to go over today. So the first theme is that of being reflective. Um, so it's looking back to understand meaning. Why did something happen? How did it happen? It's not just about what. Um, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Um, synoptic is, is, a, is a, a similar word to the word synopsis. So a synopsis of a story tells you, well, what happened? And that's basically what Matthew, Mark, and Luke are doing. And they all do it in their own different way, um, but that's fundamentally what they're doing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke want to tell the story, the what, of Jesus. John does a little bit of that, but he's more interested in telling the why. Why did Jesus do what he did? Why did it have this effect? And that's something that can really only come with, uh, with years of, of distance to really reflect on that. And John, at this point, has had a lifetime to reflect back. The second theme is Jesus' message of love. So his love for us and our love for everyone. So, so Jesus, in John's gospel, is, in fact, if, if you search the word love, it comes up in the gospel of John, I don't know how many times, but a lot. <laughs> uh, probably more than the other gospels combined. And it's talking not just about how Jesus loves us, how God loves us, but the love that we have to share and that he wants us to, sh- to show to others. And then the third theme is that Jesus' message is for everyone, not only a subset of humanity. And so this morning, we're, uh, I'm going to take a moment to kind of talk a little bit about each one of those themes. So as I said, the, the gospel is reflective. Um, we'll, we'll start there. Uh, while we see the events through John's eyes, uh, the author is looking back in time. So he's, uh, 
Now, all of the, the gospel authors are looking back in time to a degree, but John even more so. Uh, and so the events describe the position that he now holds as an eyewitness. Uh, John was uh, an apostle of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. And he had that firsthand experience. And now, years later, as a much older man, he's looking back and saying, what did it all mean? And so he emphasizes a lot of the struggles and why those struggles are significant. So there's a lot of times where the disciples have a complete inability to understand what Jesus is telling them. You know, you read through the Gospel of John, and over and over again, uh, it'll say, they did not understand. They did not understand. And he's not just talking about the people in the crowd. He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about the 12, the people that you would think would be able to understand the best. But John constantly is telling us that they didn't understand. And he's probably, and many times, he's probably putting himself in that category. I didn't understand. I didn't get it. And it's, and so, uh, and so he's looking back and emphasizing that. He's looking at the life of Jesus through reflection, um, not merely as a set of events, but events that have meaning. Now, if you ever read the, you know, uh, the four Gospels, you'll notice something immediately is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all start with what? They always start more or less with the birth of Jesus. John completely skips over that. There is no nativity story. There is no birth story. There's no origin story in John. He just kind of jumps in with the plot. Uh, well, actually, he, he jumps in with something else, which we'll get to in a minute. But it isn't the, 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 the birth of Jesus. Um, and that's because he's looking at that, not to say that the birth of Jesus is insignificant, but it's not, it's not significant to the story and the meaning that John wants his readers to get. Um, And so it's only possible, really, for us to understand these things when we consider the resurrection of Jesus and its significance in in God's plan. See, that's that's the lens through which John is looking at the life of Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection and what that means. And so that's why he begins John 1, um, verses 1 through 5. he, He writes, this is the very beginning of the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Wow, right off the bat, the author seems... Well, first of all, I've always, I always found this to be very cryptic and mysterious... Um, especially to, you know, a reader in the year 2020, which still feels like the future to me. Um, I'm looking around for the flying cars, and I'm not seeing them. Um, but, but as I'm reading this, I'm going, what on earth is John talking about? Um, and, and I think a lot of the confusion comes from the, 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 word, the word, where John talks about the word. So we usually interpret this to mean the spirit and person of Jesus. In the beginning was the spirit and purpose of Jesus, and the, and the spirit and purpose of Jesus was with God. And, and, and I think that's a fair and acceptable interpretation, but I think it's kind of incomplete. I, I think it's true. Don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that that's a wrong way to read it, but I, think, I don't think it's completely 
I mean, if that's all he meant to say, then he would have just said Jesus. Jesus was, you know, or the Christ, however he wanted to refer to him. So I think there's more to it because he used that word. And the word in Greek, and, and John was writing in Greek, the word in Greek was logos. And this logos is the word that gets translated the word because that's literally what it means. Logos is not an uncommon word in, uh, in ancient Greek language. It's very common. It just means the word. And, it, and you could also translate it the truth. Um, but for the original re- readers of this text, it wasn't just that. It wasn't just the word. It wasn't just the truth. John was writing to what are called Hellenistic Jews uh, and, and Christians, meaning people that were either Greek uh, of Greek origin themselves or were deeply immersed in Greek culture. Greek culture was, um, it was the dominant culture of the time. It's kind of like American culture today. You can't go anywhere without seeing hints, clues, or just you know, all-out examples of American culture. And that was the way Greek culture was then. And to the Hellenistic society, the word logos had a very strong philosophical connotation. World source, is, or words, world soul, soul, in other words, uh, it's kind of like the soul of the world, the embodiment of everything. The word logos didn't just mean word or truth. It meant soul. It meant the world of everything. Um, And so John is essentially beginning his gospel saying nothing short of, here's the meaning of life and the answer to every question you could ever ask. In saying the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning through all things, through him all things are made. He's basically saying this is the answer to everything in life. This is the world soul the complete soul of all existence, which again, sounds kind of weird, but that's John, so you kind of have to go with it. Um, but, but what that tells me is that it's so much more than just the story of a really nice guy who died and God raised him from the dead, which in and of itself is pretty powerful, but, God, but John's saying, oh, it's even more powerful than that. And so this is, you know, revolutionary maybe even more so in today's world than in John's time. Um, I I think it it has some pretty revolutionary connotations, especially for our world, especially if you think about it as, you know, in the beginning was the world's soul, beginning of all that was meaningful was with God, and the source of all wisdom in the universe was God, the world's soul. You know, when I kind of discovered that little tidbit about the word logos, um, the entire first few verses of John made a lot more sense to me. Is John talking about Jesus? Yes, yes, John is talking about Jesus, but he's also talking about a Jesus that is for the entire world, a Jesus that radically represents all truth, all wisdom, all meaning, all divine purpose for all mankind. That's a lot more powerful than I think I ever read it before. But how do we understand something as vast and intimidating as that in our own lives? Well, for that, that's where I believe the vehicle of love comes in. Now, one thing that I run into a lot, I'm a, I'm a, a, a psychotherapist and a marriage and family therapist in my profession, and I do a lot of couples counseling, and uh, the word love comes up a lot, as you can imagine, in the work that I do. 
And what I find is that there is a gross misunderstanding of what love is. A lot of people assume love is an emotion. And I'm not going to deny that there is an emotive quality to love. I think that, that love does spark emotion. Love can be felt in the same way an emotion is felt. But make no mistake, love is an action. Love is a verb. You know, and we see that sometimes printed up on you know, little inspirational quotes, and it can make it seem a little bit trite. It can make it seem a little, um, I don't know, hokey. And I get that, but it's true. Love is a verb. Love is an action. If, uh, and, and we see this throughout, um, you know, throughout the New Testament especially, but in the Old Testament as well. You know, if I uh, proclaim with the, the voices of angels but have no love, I am but a clanging gong, you know? Uh, and, and that verse, when Paul writes that, he's not just talking about if I don't have love in my heart, if I don't feel love. No, he's talking about if I'm not demonstrating love, if I'm not showing love. Love is something that has to come forth from us, not that we feel inside, but that other people see in us. And I think that that's one of the, and that is one of the key messages I think that Jesus was bringing to the world and that John it has reflected upon and is seeing Jesus' life as being very uh, endemic of. And so Jesus' mission statements, you know, if you look through John, you see Jesus saying, this is what I'm here to do. This is my mission. So he says in um, Chapter 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. In 536, uh, 536, he says, I have a testimony greater than that from John the Baptist. For the deeds of the, that the Father has assigned to me to complete the deeds I am now doing, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And then later in, in chapter 17, um, for, uh, which, which is essentially all a prayer, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, chapter 17 is a prayer. God, or Jesus is praying to God for himself, for his disciples, for the, it, and then he t- prays for those who believe in him, and then he prays for those who don't believe. He prays for everyone, those who hate me. He prays for these people. And in that prayer, he says, I, am, I glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory that I had with you before the world was created. All of that, then, is motivated by love, as described in the famous verses, John 3, 16 and 17. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And if that isn't enough... I think if you look in um, uh, the, the scene in the upper room uh, discussed in, in chapters uh, 13, 14, and 15, Jesus is in the upper room uh, with his disciples. And that starts with a demonstration, again, an action of love that Jesus shows for his disciples. He washes their feet. And a lot has been made about that episode. A lot has been made about Jesus' actions there. But make no mistake, it's about love. And it is an act, a demonstrable way to show love. And then he discusses love with his disciples. He discusses. He says, my commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. 
No one has greater love than this, that one lays down his life for, for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then he prays for love, as I mentioned, in, in pretty much all of chapter 17. And then he closes that prayer by saying, Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you. And these men know that you sent me. I made known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. He's not just praying for the believers. He's praying for the unbelievers. He's praying for those who persecute him, that they will come to know God. He's, he's praying, he's interceding on their behalf. And so this provides the context and definition for Jesus' death as an act of love. And it also connects Jesus' ministry to the disciples. They are to love in the same manner that Jesus has done. And the shocking feature of this is that Jesus is also doing that for Judas. Jesus is not excluding Judas from that equation. Judas who would go on to betray him. He's not taking him out of that and saying, well, everyone here, with the exception of one, who we're not going to talk about right now, He's saying, no, everybody here. He's interceding on his behalf. And this is the pattern that Jesus expects from his disciples, to love even those who hate them. Now, this is incredibly difficult for the disciples to do, just as it is for us today. Um, If you have someone who hates you, if you have someone who uh, talks bad about you or is maybe not even hate, maybe hate's too strong, but just that gets under your skin, irritates you, you find obnoxious or irritating or just plain wrong. It's hard to love those people, right? I know I find it difficult. But Jesus is telling us that's what we're called to do. And so to to then kind of look at that, after Jesus is resurrected, look at what Jesus does in, in John chapter 21 um, starting verse 15, he says, when, uh, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he had said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and walked wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death He was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus is saying that if you love me, you will show that love to others. You will tend to my sheep. You will take care of those who can't take care of themselves. You will love those that you find difficult to love. Follow me. Peter was called to continue the work that Christ had begun not because he was as good as Christ, not because he was fit to, uh, to, to fill his shoes, 
but because he called himself a follower of Jesus. And as we call ourselves followers of Jesus, I believe that we have the same calling to demonstrate that same love. And that brings us to the third, what I, what I see is the third guiding theme of the Gospel of John, and that is inclusion. In deep diving into this Gospel, you quickly see that John is very concerned with the inclusion of all peoples, regardless of the boundaries that the readers may see. Where, where, me, where we may see differences that may seem worrisome or even dangerous, God sees his own children. Uh, take this passage from John chapter 4. Uh, now Jesus had gone through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now this woman knows how things are done. A Jew does not merely walk into a, a Samaria and drink from the same vessel as a Samaritan. That, that is um, just morally wrong. Today, it might be difficult for us to appreciate the gravity of that situation, but I think you could imagine where, you know, if, if you were to imagine your, your great-grandmother or great-grandfather or whoever, uh, maybe an old-school, really pious person righteous person, how would they think about you going into a certain place, wherever, the, or wherever that place is in your head? Have, have you ever heard someone say to you, well, Christians just don't go there. Good people just don't go there. Jesus is going there. He, in, in this time, in this era, that was, you know, entering into that conversation with the Samaritan woman was morally reprehensible to the religious leaders of the time. But Jesus is reaching out to this person. He sees this person not as a Samaritan, but as a child created by God, as a child deserving of love. There is no person on this earth who wouldn't fit that criteria. I don't think it's an accident, especially with how reflective John is, I don't think it's an accident that he includes this story in the gospel. And actually, you look through it, and John has been building up to this. Early on, he talks about, uh, we, we, talk, we see him gathering the disciples. He gives this message to the disciples. And you think, okay, they're good Jewish boys. Great. Spread, spread this gospel to the good Jewish boys. And then we see him turn to Nicodemus, who's a tax collector. We say, okay. He's Jewish, yes, but he is working on behalf of the Romans. He probably isn't, uh, you know, he's, he's not exactly on the up and up. He's skimming some off the top. All right, whatever. Um, and then later, we talk, you know, he spreads the gospel to a Roman official, a spokesperson for the very government that at the time was oppressing and suppressing the Jewish people. And Jesus reaches out to him, shows love for that Roman officer, and then we get the coup de grace. We get Jesus drinking from the well with a jug offered by a Samaritan woman. Now, you, if you're a, a reader of this gospel at the time it was written, 
this would have been a radical progression that you would have increasingly become more and more uncomfortable with. And you get to this part and you think, I don't know that I can go there. That goes against all the morals, that goes against all the teachings I've, I, have, I have been taught my entire life as a good Jewish person. And so me, as someone who's been taught the Christian ethos my entire life, I have to ask myself, what kind of boundaries like that exist in my life? How am I withholding, how am I keeping the love of God and the message of Jesus to myself because of certain boundaries that have been created in my head. So what John is emphasizing here is a message of inclusion, that Jesus is the Savior for all, not only a few. With Nicodemus, with the Roman official. Oh, I forgot to even mention the paralyzed man, a man forgotten by all of society. His, his, uh, his friends lower him down and through the roof, and Jesus heals him. That it's a man forgotten by society. At that time, if you couldn't earn a living, if you didn't have a trade, then you were useless. That's another one that Jesus reaches out to. And finally, the Samaritan woman, a woman whose people were thought to be heretics, God's outcast by the Jews of the time. They had the wrong theology. They had the wrong bloodline. Jesus even calls out this woman's marital history, which would have been a... a, a, a a source of shame for her. And that doesn't even exclude her from the grace of God, from the love of God. Now, this has never been an easy lesson for Christians to learn. We are still struggling with it. I think exclusion, division, to this day is still the biggest, the greatest sin that we as Christians commit, both on a private micro level and also on, on an institutional level. It's, it's, in my opinion, the biggest sin that we commit on a regular basis and find a way to justify. We want to think that Jesus is simply an idealized version of ourselves. Jesus thinks like I do. The things I'm doing, I'm doing because Jesus would do it. How do I know that? Because I'm doing it. And I wouldn't do it if Jesus didn't do it. We create that circular logic. We don't like to think about Jesus that loves and died for our worst enemy, our nemesis. We don't want to think about Jesus as being that person, but Jesus is the Messiah for me and you, just as he is the Messiah for thieves and murderers, liars and cheats. Jesus is the Messiah for the rich, for the poor, the murderers and the gossipers. Jesus is the Messiah for Donald Trump and Barack Obama and all who support both of them. Jesus is the Messiah for all. And so as I begin this new year, my reflection results not in a resolution, but a challenge. And um, I'd like to invite the band back up um, as, as I issue this challenge both to myself and to you all. As we're entering this new year, this new decade, let us rethink how we interact with the people that we may consider to be less savory, reaching for patience for the intolerable and loving the obnoxious and offensive people in our lives. We have to confront who Jesus is. Jesus is the living word, the logos, the world soul of God, the source of all wisdom in the universe. We have to confront our own prejudices, both known and unknown, 
that prevent us from loving the way that Jesus loved and forgiving the way that Jesus forgives. Jesus' message is one that requires constant reflection. It requires constant love, and it requires constant inclusion of all. No exceptions. John's gospel opens up a challenging call for anyone who claims to follow Jesus Christ. And so let us accept that challenge as we renew our spirit of reflection, love, and inclusion in this new year and the new decade. Please stand with us. say our prayer of confession. Uh, I'll read the parts in white, and if everyone will join in the parts in yellow. Lord, we confess to each other and to you, our creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. 
We confess that we have not loved you with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 